I'd like to introduce tonight's moderator, um, Mr. Joe Matthews. Joe is a fourth-generation Californian. He is a Los Angeles-based senior fellow at the New America Foundation. He writes about his home state and its politics, media, labor, and real estate. He's the author of The People's Machine, Arnold Schwarzenegger and the Rise of Blockbuster Democracy. Previously, he was a reporter at the, uh, a paper that is called the Los Angeles Times, uh, the Wall Street Journal, and the Baltimore Sun. At the Sun, his coverage of a down-on-its-luck neighborhood of former slaughterhouses earned him the incomparable title Bard of Pigtown. His stories have appeared in the New Republic, the Washington Post, Politico, and Condé Nast portfolio. We're always very happy to welcome Mr. Joe Matthews. Um, thanks very much, Gregory. Thanks to the endowment, to Zocalo, um, all the folks who, who uh, for you all for coming out, for the, the panel here, I'm going to sort of introduce as, I, as we get to them. I, well, let me just jump into this. Um, set the stage with a little context that will be familiar to some people I recognize in the audience, uh, but helpful for others who are watching and listening and across the digital universe. In California, uh, health and human services are about 30% of the state budget. That proportion has been uh, pretty, uh, percentage has been pretty constant over the years. Uh, uh, the last budget bill in September of 08, not quite the last one, it was 31 billion out of a budget of a little over 100 billion. What has changed, and I think the larger context and is relevant to what we're talking about now um, in terms of the, the, the cost and human cost of some cuts that are coming in social services and that have come, is that uh, you know, while the mix of, of that between health and human services traditionally in California was a little, about half and half, um, the health percentage has creeped up over the years. It's grown much faster to, to about two-thirds of that uh, $31 billion last year. Um, and so you can see sort of the, the, the human services part has been um, squeezed. So that's the context even before the fix the state is in now. Now, what do we mean by Armageddon? What does Armageddon look like? Uh, we're not literally talking about the end of the world. It's a, a, a phrase we adopted uh, 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 from the governor who's been uh, warning of Armageddon cuts that were coming if we didn't do what he said. Um, all the way back until early 2004 when I was still covering him as a beat reporter at the LA Times. Uh, most recently he said we get Armageddon cuts if his measures failed in the May special election. And I think now we're, we're seeing how he defines Armageddon, though the definition does seem to change sometimes day to day and week to week. These folks w who, who know far, much more, far more about the subject than I do will, uh, will tell the story in more detail. But among his, uh, his uh, sort of goalpost moving uh, proposals has been to, at one point, he was calling for eliminating uh, uh, CalWORKs, the, the state's welfare to work program, uh, eliminating healthy families, that's uh, children's health insurance uh, for children of the working poor, uh, cuts to Medi-Cal, very much on the table, cuts in, uh, in SSI and SSP, uh, which is, uh, uh, you know, for, for uh, age blind disabled. And, um, and also, um, you know, serious cuts at one point uh, in a May revision that would eliminate services for more than 80% of the approximately 460,000 recipients of in-home support services. So, you know, all these things on the table, cuts to a variety of other um, programs. Uh, now, the, the Democrats in the legislature uh, had a conference committee which produced a report recently um, that wasn't sort of extreme as the as the more extreme uh, Schwarzenegger proposals, but 
you know, had cuts on the table for many of these similar programs. Mm -hmm. uh, healthy families being reduced by, by 70 million, that's more than a quarter of the size of that program. Uh, reduction in caregiver hours in, in IHSS and eliminating some service for those with the least impairment. Um, some strange accounting in Medi-Cal, cuts in CalWORKs, um, and reductions in SSI and SSP. So we've talked, that gives you a sense of the, the numbers and, and, and what's out there. We're hoping um, tonight to essentially get to the, the human cost, what this is going to look like, not just for private providers, but for, for people who depend on these programs. Um, and I want to sort of start by turning to um, uh, Mike Harold, who uh, joins us from uh, Sacramento and is, uh, uh, you know, I think a, really a leading voice and strategist, the, the person that everyone says to talk to when you have these kinds of questions. He's a, the legislative advocate for the Western Center on Law and Poverty, um, and uh, this is his area of expertise. And for, for prior to working uh, for the Western Center, he's an appointee of, uh, of uh, Governor Davis at the Department of Housing and Community Development, and he served as both legislative and external affairs uh, director. He's also a, a native California, a graduate of UCSB. Um, when we start by asking you to sort of give us a little news, <laughs> where are we now in the budget? And do you have a sense of, you know, between these sort of various moving proposals and Democrats and the governor and the Republicans in the legislature too, you know, what the cuts are ultimately going to be and look like? Mm, I could make a lot of money if I could guess that last one. <laughs> um, well, let me just say by where we're at, yeah. which is we have now been in a fight in Sacramento for some 18 months trying to f bring our state budget crisis into a resolution. Um, so, you know, as you know, we've had a couple of previous attempts, one last summer, uh, late last summer, where we passed the temporary measure, and then again this past February, where we actually did quite a bit of heavy lifting, where we, we dealt with some um, 39 to 40 billion dollars of revenue problems. Um, you know, I, I was going to note that I remember a year and a half ago, we formed this gigantic coalition at the state level of all the folks in the budget who were being affected by the cuts. We'd never really had a coalition like this. And, you know, I think back on those wonderful days, the size of our problem was only $16 billion then. If we could just have a $16 billion problem <laughs> now, I'd feel so much better. Um, but um, while you're going to probably hear me say things tonight that would be critical of the governor, I don't blame him for this problem. The reality is the economy has the largest share of what's going on with our state budget crisis. And it's not because we've overspent the budget. It's not because we've undertaxed people. It's because the economy went south. I literally sat in the Capitol and in a matter of a couple of weeks last summer, watched our budget deficit grow from $16 billion to $42 billion in a matter of weeks. So these are obviously very complex and difficult problems. And of course, politics is in the middle of all that, which just makes things so much simpler. Um, the, but here's where we're at, I think, now. Um, you know, after the May elections, the governor really went out and very strongly said he's going to really, Armageddon's coming, no more tax increases, we're going to cut our way to, to solutions, and we're going to get California back on track permanently. Um, what we had, I think, was in the time in between, I thought we had a reasonably effective work group process by the conference committee report that actually develop, developed a product that I thought was a reasonable compromise. Um, frankly, it was the first, Western, first time Western Center had ever opposed, a, pro, supported a budget that had cuts for low-income people in it. 
because we truly felt that, frankly, it was just going to get worse from here and that this was an honest and fair effort to try to bridge the gap. It had revenue in it. It had cuts for people. It had some transfers. The pain, there was shared sacrifice for everybody in the budget. Um, and it looked like a, a week ago Tuesday that we might actually have a resolution, I mean, a little more, about two weeks ago, that we were actually going to have a resolution. Um, the, let, the assembly actually cut a deal with the assembly Republicans to do away, to take back $3 billion in, in, um, in expenditures that we had planned on spending during this current, oh, the past budget year, and, and take them back and put them towards the next budget year. The assembly, with overwhelming Democratic and Republican support, passed three measures that would have accomplished that. Um, sent it over to the Senate, and at that point, the governor intervened with the Senate Republicans and asked him them not to put up the votes for that. Um, a week ago Tuesday, Daryl Steinberg and the other Senate Democrats tried to force a vote on this, and it collapsed. Um, and what you saw was then two days later, Controller Chang issuing IOUs for the first time since 1992 to some 35,000 or more people, vendors, and other folks in California. Um, so I have to tell you that both from a personal standpoint, having been in the Capitol during that period, and also I think just observing the atmosphere in the building, we had a major collapse last week of our system. And there's a lot of bad feeling right now, and I think we've had an entire week, frankly, where the two sides have just spent their week sniping at each other. Um, the governor has frankly been on an ardent public relations campaign to target two things that the Democrats have really stood by strongly. They've made their bottom lines. One is they're not going to eviscerate the, the welfare program that we call CalWORKs in our state, and they weren't going to eliminate and gut the in-home supportive service program. Um, and the governor has spent the last week on a public relations campaign specifically targeting those precise two programs. It's not an accident. He is trying to weaken Democratic resolve to hang in there on those two proposals. He's gaining in popular, in, in the public approval of the, of, the, of the public right now. His, his approval ratings are going up. He thinks he's got the Democrats on the run, and he's really keeping the pressure up. Um, you know, obviously the speaker is not happy with what the governor's demanding. He's also now added 16 new items to his list of things he wants beyond what the conference committee had already agreed to in his report. And that, at the end of the day, is really what's holding up uh, the, the, the process right now, is there's just, we have 16 new issues that we have to work through and get solved in order for the governor to apparently cut a deal to make this budget go forward. Mike, I, I want to uh, try to uh, focus on CalWORKs first and, and mm -hmm. the, the latest proposal, the, the one I watched sort of be delivered yesterday up in Sacramento, um, you know, called for, at least as it was described, cutting $750 million um, <coughs> from f that, of money that goes to, you know, eliminating, you know, essentially job training, job placement, transportation, drug and alcohol treatment, child care assistance for all the recipients not meeting federal standards for work participation. Mm -hmm. How many people is that? And, and what, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis would it mean for, the, for those people if that proposal became, you know, law? Well, the CalWORKs program serves um, 1.3 million people in California. A million of them are children. And it basically provides cash assistance to keep a roof over the head of families. I mean, that's basically what it does. We provide the maximum grant for a family of three is $694, the exact amount. That and that's $694 a week or a month? A month for a family of three. And that's exactly the exact same grant level as we had 20 years ago under Governor Duke Majan. 
So Grant hasn't exactly gone, we haven't gone high on the hog. That's not adjusted for inflation. That's the actual number. It's not adjusted for inflation. They had 694 in 1989. They're getting 694 a month in 2009. Um, so the program, what the governor's essentially proposing, this is, I would note, a proposal, uh, CalWorks was actually created by Pete Wilson, that great liberal welfare reformer. <laughs> and, he, and he actually set up a program that said, we are going to provide assistance for every child in the state, notwithstanding the behavior or the perception of the, of the parents. And what that means is that over time, we have made sure that we provide cash assistance and keep a roof over the heads of kids. Um, and the gov Governor Wilson did this, not because he's such, you know, he thinks this is, you know, he's got such a great heart. Well, he might very well. But the real reason is it costs a heck of a lot more if they end up in child welfare, foster care, foster care or other jail systems. So the governor now, though, essentially is proposing to undo Pete Wilson's welfare reform. And he wants, he says, he wants to say any family that's been on assistance more than 24 months, if that family is not meeting the work rates, we're going to cut off all cash assistance for the entire family. Under current policy, we punish the parents right now. We take away their portion of the uh, cash assistance, and we take away their services like childcare and transportation. But we make sure we keep a roof over the children's head. That's what the governor's proposing to take away. He wants to take away the roof over the million, million kids, and any parent who's not meeting the work participation rate would suffer the loss of, in, of income. And the de governor's own Department of Social Services estimates 78% of the people under the governor's plan would fail to meet the work rates. So where would those people go? Well, I think those people end up having to double up with other people. They end up in the homeless shelters. They end up on the streets. Many families would suffer. And we would also see a lot of children getting separated from their parents and being put into foster care, child welfare systems, child protective services. Very cost intensive, far higher cost programs than CalWORKs. Thank you. I, I want to bring in um, Marta Russell, who's uh, uh, an author and independent journalist who's, who's uh, focuses on the socioeconomic aspects of uh, disablement, and, and she's the author of the award-winning Beyond Ramps, Disability at the End of the Social Contract. Um, she's done a lot of different things, too many to go into. She's an essayist, a commentator, documentary producer, um, and among her many community pursuits, she's a member of the board of directors of the ACLU of Southern California, a uh, member of the board of uh, directors of Neighborhood Legal Services in Los Angeles. And, and I, I want to get the other piece of, of the news that Mike was talking about, IHSS. Um, you know, what's, what, what kind of, you know, what do you see, how is that likely to resolve itself and what would be the kind of the human impact of, of the, the kind of cuts that are being proposed, you know, 80% okay. not being yeah. eligible? Well, uh, there's approximately 500,000 people on the program now and the governor's proposal is to shave off approximately 90%, which would be about 380,000 recipients. And it gets very arcane because um, the rules under the in-home supportive services program are based on a functional score rating. And so some of what's been going on in the legislature is they've been playing with this functional score rating. Are we going to drop people below two or uh, on a scale of six? Are we going to drop people below four, which is what the governor proposes, I believe the legislature proposes too? Um, so, it, it, it's kind of a way to divide the community, uh, which is, a, I think, a, a, a very insidious tactic um, to start 
thinking about, well, who's going to lose their services? Because the functional score rating was never intended to be um, a method by which eligibility for services was determined or cut. It, it relates to specific um, limitations and tasks and how providers need to help persons uh, in order to get through their day. It also keeps people out of institutions, which is far more costly, four times more costly, to put one individual into an institution like a nursing home um, than to provide the in-home support services, which I think tops off somewhere in the neighborhood of $13,000 a year. Um, so you're looking at you know, penny-wise, pound-foolish ideas to begin with. S secondly, you're looking at uh, imperiling people's lives because a lot of these people are significantly disabled. Even the people below the four cutoff, which is where uh, the governor would like to see it, you know, those people eliminate four below. Um, People are still, you know, using power wheelchairs, some uh, using oxygen, you know. Um, there's social workers. I've talked to some of the social workers and they say, oh, we're getting so many calls now from people. They're wanting to know what their functional score rating is <laughs> so that they can try to figure out whether they're going to get cut off or not. And, um, uh, and so you've got 360,000 people, basically, uh, dis disabled persons and seniors across this state who, for some, these cuts will be life-threatening. And for others who may be uh, forced against their will into nursing homes um, are, have participated in this program precisely because it has kept them out of nursing homes. Um, People probably aren't aware of this, but back in 1999, there was a Supreme Court case, Olmstead versus LC. Was this a U.S. Supreme Court or state Supreme Court? Uh, US federal, Supreme federal, U.S., mm -hmm. uh, in which um, the court determined that an individual was entitled to receive services within the, quote, least restrictive setting. So um, it was basically an integration mandate. It was saying, we want disabled people in the community. We don't want them shut up in institutions. So the states should go about their way in planning how that can happen. Now, California has had this pioneer program in home support services. And um, it's, it's one of the first. There's only about three or four states in the country that really uh, provide the level of services that are there. Hmm. Mar I'm gonna, if you don't mind me asking, mm -hmm. do, do you, do, are you, have you been served or do you use the, the program and I would it make an impact on your do. life? I yes. How, how I would it change? I mean, I know there's also talking about reducing caregiver salaries is, is very much part of this too. Well, it is, yes, and, and that's been blocked actually by an attorney uh, who has uh, gotten an injunction uh, telling the state that they cannot reduce caregiver wages, but we don't know how well that's going to hold up. The governor's fighting it um, at this point. But, um, yeah, for me personally, um, if they were to cut below two, 
I would probably keep all my hours. If they cut below four, I'm going to lose a number of hours, um, probably a great number of hours. How many hours do you have, and what does that allow you to do in your, in your personal well, life, in your work life? 96, around 96 hours, which is, you know, allows me uh, to have someone to do things like, you know, do heavy lifting, which physically I'm not supposed to pick up more than one pound. Mm -hmm. um, it uh, takes care of a lot of the domestic chores in the house uh, for me, that laundry, things like that, that are difficult, obviously, for me to handle on my own. Um, some personal care tasks as well, which I'd rather not go into. Sure. Those, those understood, understood. And those tasks that sort of free you up to do some of the professional and, and community work? Yes, absolutely. They allow me to continue my journalism. I'm not uh, overexpending my energy on things that I, uh, I have a great difficulty performing those tasks. I would probably have to resign my position from the uh, ACLU board and the NLS board uh, if I were to have to do the things in my home that my helper helps me with now. Uh, but it's highly likely that even, um, you know, if, I'm, if I retain some hours, that I wouldn't be able to find a worker who would be willing to come in for, say, two hours as opposed to five hours a day because it's not going to be worth their while. They're going to have their own costs, their transportation costs, you know, gas or bus fare. Um, and it's not going to be a job that really would sustain them, and especially if the state cuts their wages back to minimum wage, which is $8 an hour. Thank you. Um, I want to recognize uh, Senator Gilbert Cedillo who has joined us. Thank you very much. Uh, um, uh, I'm in some ways sorry that you're here because it, it means we're not voting on the budget or getting that soft tonight, but um, I know that's uh, no, no, uh, no lack of trying. Um, I want to get to you shortly, but I want to bring in um, Michelle Wolf at, at this point. Um, um, and uh, it's very great of you to join us. Um, um, uh, Michelle, as I think some people in this room know very well, is, is a, a very important person in a lot of different worlds. But she asked me, I said, how should I, I, I introduce you? And she said, just say parent and advocate. So I'm going to, uh, I'm going to leave it at that. And, and, and let's keep going where we were on the IHSS. Um, um, you know, uh, you're, you're the uh, mother of a 14-year-old teen um, with significant development, developmental disabilities. Um, you know, what, how would some of these cuts that are coming in the pike really affect your life in a day-to-day well, way? We're also an IHSS recipient. Um, in this case, uh, I'm, I get paid as a family member uh, because we provide hours of personal care to our son. Uh, that far exceeds what you would be giving to a normal, or typical, as we like to say, 14-year-old. Um, he needs help. He has cerebral palsy, and he has intellectual disabilities. So he needs help with every, what we call, activities of daily life. Uh, getting dressed, going to the bathroom, eating, uh, cleaning up, putting on his shoes, putting on his socks, um, uh, giving him his meds. Uh, every activity of daily life, uh, bathing, uh, requires one-on-one uh, -on -one assistance, similar to what you would give probably like a, a two or a three-year-old. 
although he, he's got a little more attitude uh, than your typical two and three. He's a teenager. Uh, he's a teen. Uh, you know, uh, what I want to say is, I mean, it's easy to, you know, if you look at him and he's using his walker or his wheelchair and he's only able to communicate a few words verbally, uh, you might say, oh my God, what kind of life does he have? But actually, uh, because of the early intervention services and everything we've received through the regional center system and um, in the community, he's a really quite active participant in the community. He, I was going to say he just got back from two weeks at sleepaway camp with an aide uh, partially paid by the regional center. Uh, he loves to swim, and he's very excited to see that Manny is back playing with the Dodgers. <laughs> um, I, he didn't really understand what had happened, so I explained that Manny was in a very long timeout. If you don't mind me asking you to ask to get a little personal, but to get into dollars and cents with this cut in caregiver pay, what does that mean over the course of a month or a year? I mean, is that beyond just what what would be the money, and and is that create a time issue for you? I know as you've said to me before, you're 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 more fortunate than many folks in this program, middle class family. But what what is that? Well, I've, I've had to work part-time ever since he was diagnosed at 13 months. And I've been fortunate to work with nonprofits right now. I work with the Jewish Federation, which has been very supportive. Uh, but that still means less pay. And so um, part of the pay I miss gets helped with the IHSS. I would probably have to work more hours, uh, which means I wouldn't be able to go to his school as often, the speech therapies, the medical appointments. And I've also got an 87-year-old father who's living by himself. Uh, who progressively needs a little more caregiving. Uh, so um, that's the concern, is there's just not enough hours in the week uh, without this. It's, it's not a whole lot of money. It's a few hundred dollars a month, uh, but it makes a big difference. And it's the difference between having a sitter so I could go out, or so my husband and I can uh, go out on a Saturday night, uh, which is very important. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of marriages with children with significant uh, disabilities end in divorce. And, and there's economic disadvantage, particularly on the mother when that happens. So I, I think it's, it's a small amount of money that has a very large impact. Thank you. I'm, I'm, uh, at this point, I want to bring in uh, Gloria Rodriguez, immediately to my left, who's the president and CEO of the Community Clinic Association of uh, LA County. Um, uh, the association uh, serves and represents the interests of, of free and community clinic members. There are 42 members, over 120 sites in LA County. Um, and these are clinics that provide um, sort of quality primary care. Um, it can be very different from clinic to clinic, the mix, um, but for the uninsured and for medically uh, underserved populations, a lot of underinsured people out there too. Um, and what I, I, there's sort of two questions for you, which is um, I'm interested in both the kind of the direct kind of budget impact on these community clinics, you know, what, what that means. and. Um, both for those clinics and the people they serve, and also, you know, indirect impact when you're talking about, you know, sort of, you know, maybe cuts to healthy families, you know, cuts in medical, various other health programs, you know, how does that ultimately affect you indirectly? So the direct and indirect impact. Well, I'll start with the direct. As of July 1st, we lost uh, Medi-Cal optional benefits, which means dental services for adults. Uh, podiatry services, uh, psychology services, uh, optometry. In a population with a high rate of diabetes where they need podiatry services, where they need dental care, uh, and they need that 
optometry services is going to have a huge impact on many of those folks. Um, healthy families. Uh, if the uh, now we're talking about cuts that are on the proposed. These are the uh, dental cuts and all of those have already taken place, so they are gone. Hmm. Uh, but now we're talking about proposed cuts. The governor proposes to eliminate the entire Healthy Families program. So that's worst case scenario. Uh, the conference committee is uh, proposing a 30% reduction. If the program goes away here in Los Angeles County, that means over 230,000 children will no longer have insurance. That is a huge impact. Uh, could possibly happen around the time school starts. How many kids will not be able to get their immunizations? How many kids will not get their school health physicals that are required by law? We have to start worrying about those kinds of things. If we have another uh, uh, a surge in the swine flu that we saw hit children uh, first across this country, we have to worry about that. Some of the other cuts are some of the Medi-Cal cuts you, you yeah. uh, referenced in your yeah. opening statements. Yeah. Again, those will have a huge impact. How so? What it means to the clinics is um, access to services. And because the clinics see so many uninsured right now, and those numbers are growing every day as people are losing their insurance because they're losing their jobs, these cuts are coming at the worst time. It's when people are needing these services more than ever, but clinics are having to make very hard choices. What programs will they have to cut? What programs will they have to eliminate? In order to do that, will they have to cut back their hours? Right now, you go to a clinic at 7 o'clock in the morning, and people are lined up outside the door before they've even opened their doors. And we have a history of a mission, and we will see every patient that's there. So oftentimes they're open till 9 o'clock at night. They're open on Saturdays. At least that's been the history. We won't be able to do that. Wow. With the dental cuts now, we have clinics that are having to consider whether or not they can keep those dental clinics hmm. open. Part of the problem is here in California and certainly in Los Angeles, we see a higher number of uninsured than any other community clinic across the country. The average uninsured seeking services at community clinics is about 34%. Here we're at 68% of the patients coming to a community clinic are uninsured. So what do you do when the people coming to get services can't afford to pay for those services? And so the, your source of revenue are from those government programs or philanthropy. And we know that philanthropy has been hit considerably. So the grants that the clinics have relied on for many, many years to offset some of those costs, those are going away. The generosity of the private um, population out there that donate to clinics to help keep them open. Those folks, you, we all know, we've all been hit by this economy. We're giving less money. So they have less opportunities to offset those costs. Hmm. So we will see um, services being reduced. It's very clear that that will happen. Are any of the your member clinics in danger of closing? It's probably too early to tell because we don't know how bad the cuts will be. Uh, so ask me again in a four months, five are months. You, are you to the point where you're making contingency plans? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. We already, like I said, people are cutting back. We've had layoffs. Um, many of the clinics have laid off. I can tell you one right now. Uh, yesterday laid off 20 employees. So we are being impacted just by what's happening right now. <laughs> and what does this mean to all of those folks that are finding themselves without health care but needing it? Yeah. Don't have their um, access to the medications. Uh, you know, maybe have been a lifelong uh, Kaiser patient who now has no insurance and no access, but they have asthma or they have diabetes mm -hmm. and they need those medications. And they can't just go to a pharmacy and get those medications. You have to be seen by a physician. You have to have a prescription. So this is going to be a huge problem. Where will they go? They'll have to go to emergency rooms. So that's going to impact things even more because the waiting times at emergency rooms here in LA are already long. If any of you have been to an emergency room, the average wait time is over 18 hours. <laughs> wow, wow. Well, thank you, thank you. I want to get Senator Cedillo in here. Um, can I, can I call you Gilbert in this forum? Sure. I'm, I'm used to that. Please. Um, <laughs> um, let's, I, just on one point, one, one thing that's in these cuts I noticed is um, uh, there's a piece of Medi-Cal and then some, um, some uh, again, actually, Pete Wilson uh, uh, era programs that, uh, uh, that's, that uh, serve uh, legal immigrants um, here. Um, um, you know, uh, their Medi-Cal cuts, uh, so $125 million in the May revise for, for, for services for newly qualified legal immigrants and permanent residents. Um, do you have a sense of why, why you, know, you know, particularly in this town, I mean, why, you know, why, that, why that seems to be a, a target? Is that, is that political? What's, what's, what's going on there? What's going on is, is I, I wouldn't focus on that. I, I think there's just this total commitment to unravel the social safety net. And there's this very pronounced and profound hostility to government. And it's a product of over 30, 35 years of, of ideological creep. Uh, and we're at a moment uh, with a person in office who has extraordinary capacity to be a messenger, uh, to confuse people, uh, to misdirect them and misguide them. Uh, and to uh, pit groups against other groups. But at the end of the day, what we see is a, is a very pronounced hostility towards government and a desire to unravel it, unravel the social safety net, but not just that, to really, in, in many respects, to unravel the traditional roles uh, of government, whether it's uh, education, uh, public safety, uh, infrastructure, uh, all these are being uh, assaulted at this moment. Well, then a, a political question. You've, you've been in the Senate a while and in, in the government a while. What is the, you know, how do we get out of this? I mean, we're, we talked about, Mike has made the point, we talked about the economic, you know, reason for this, you know, particular predicament we're in. But, you know, we also talked um, about there being kind of a, a squeeze in health and human services as health, health spending is you know, kind of risen at a great, much greater pace than the human services piece, and there's a bit of been of a, over this generation, a human services squeeze. You know, why is that, and, and what strategically could be done sort of differently to, to so we're not, you know, it's a, you're, you're sort of always on defense, essentially. Well, I, I, I think, Joe, that the real problem, and I applaud everybody for being here tonight, because uh, uh, it really reflects what I think is the central problem uh, in our state and in our nation. We made a, a very serious 
uh, uh, effort to change the direction of our country uh, last fall, and we'll have an opportunity to do the same uh, come shortly with the governor. But the real crisis is a crisis of leadership. Uh, for me, uh, it's, it's extraordinary. This is, even on the worst day of its economy, this is the eighth largest economy of the world. It's $1.4 trillion of economic uh, activity. It's a marvel around the world. People think of California uh, as a, its own nation state. Uh, they marvel at our higher education. They marvel at our infrastructure, at our ports. Uh, I've been in many international forums where people just really marvel at what we've been able to do. But we did that uh, over 50, 60 years ago, 40 years ago with great leaders, great visionaries, people who had faith in government and faith in investing in the future. They were visionaries. And I would put in there Gov Governor Brown and Governor Regan. Governor Regan expanded and built uh, this incredible uh, social safety net uh, that exists for this state. But these were people who invested in the state and were not unwilling to make those commitments. But towards the, the end of the 70s, we had the, uh, uh, just a kind of an ideological creep uh, that continued, uh, that assaulted government, uh, said government is bad, that government's a beast, that they have to starve the beast, uh, that said, oh, the nine you know, most scariest words any Californian American wants to hear is I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Uh, just this whole ideological creep that said you could have more for less. Yeah. And so people began to be unwilling because they believed that, their leaders told them that, that you could have more uh, for less. And so people still want quality education, they want quality infrastructure, they want quality social services, but they believe that uh, investments or taxes uh, are bad. Uh, they're told that every day, uh, nonstop, and therefore they believe that somehow there's a problem in government and that it's not efficient uh, and it's not working and that that's why uh, we have these, these challenges when in fact the challenges begin at a global level, yeah. part of the global economy and part of the national economy. Every state is challenged and confronted with this uh, at this very moment. Uh, I want to jump off from that and, and go back mm -hmm. to Marta a little bit on a, a program we haven't mentioned a lot which sort of the SSI, mm -hmm. SSP um, for aged, blind, disabled income. Um, you know, we're often told, uh, as a member of the press, we're often told California is one of the most generous um, states. Um, you know, um, I would talk about how much folks actually, you know, are, 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 you know, who rely on those programs actually get, and, and, and you know, what is, what's happened to their buying power here? Okay, well, um, first of all, it's never been enough. And to live in California is very expensive, as we all know. Um, the grant uh, for an individual on SSI was $907 at the beginning of, I believe it was, December 1st of January. Um, the state has already made two cuts to that, which have gone into effect. Uh, people have seen their grants be reduced down to $850. Um, the governor is ex wants to cut it yet again um, uh, uh, to bring it down to eight hundred and thirty dollars. That's that's for an individual. That's right? for this is for we were, an individual. And yes. for a, a couple, as we were talking about the sort of disincentive to marriage, it's it's would go from it was fifteen seventy nine in January and we'd go down to fourteen oh seven. So you're 
you know, as we were talking a little bit in the green room, uh, there's an incentive in that system to get divorced, essentially. Right. Oh, never, be, never get married if you're on SSI. Uh, <laughs> that, that's a given. Adverse family does. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So um, this would be the fifth time in 12 months that the SSI, SSP grants have been cut in some way. The, the June 2008 cost of living was cut. The federal cost of living increase given January 1st was withheld as of May 1st. And the June 2009 cost of living was also cut. Um, I asked um, for a handout to be passed out, which is from the California Budget Project. And it's a chart. Let me see if I have mine here. Maybe you all have them and you don't need me to show it to you because I can't find it. Great, there it is. Okay, um, if you look at that chart, you can see from left to right that there's a steady decline since June of 1990. And what this is is that the, it's the purchasing power, uh, inflation-adjusted purchasing power of those people who are on the SSI program. And what we've seen over these years is that these grants uh, now um, have been reduced to such an extent that people have left one quarter um, loss in their purchasing power. So I guess the point I want to make about that is, is that this is not something new for people on SSI. They've been experiencing this creep that Gilbert was talking about and their benefits for quite a long while. And um, many now are going to be faced with homelessness or trying to move in with someone they know or, uh, you know, there's even been talk about tent cities. Um, and some of them uh, who are more severely disabled will be faced with being thrown into horribly abusive Medi-Cal nursing homes. And I've seen some, so they're pretty bad. Mike, you want to get in on that? Well, you know, I, I want to make the connection, too, between what we're doing in the IHSS program and the SSI program. It's the same people. 85% of the folks on IHSS get SSI also. So when you hear Marta talk about the number of cuts to services she's going to get, or, or, or as you described them for your son, at the same time, many of these same people are seeing their SSI grants, what they rely on to live every month, also reduced. And let me just remind folks, people on SSI do not get food stamps. I think it's a common misconception that they also get an additional amount of money for food like CalWORKs recipients do. They do not. So that $850 a month, that has to cover everything. Your transportation, utilities, uh, your food, and your rent. I mean, forget about any necessities or any extras. And God forbid you have co-pays for your medicals and a lot of prescriptions. People get in very difficult situations in these situations. And the other thing I would note, by definition, they're blind, age, and disabled. Less than 1% of them have income from earnings, earnings from income. And I, I, one thing that's been mentioned in terms of real world impact is people having to double up or triple up and, and live together. And you know, I, I, I started life as a crime reporter in Baltimore City, you know, they had an entire HBO series about how bad uh, <laughs> crime was in Baltimore. And I, I mean, those kinds of living arrangements can be, and particularly, and we're talking about, you know, with something like CalWORKs, we're talking by definition people who have children. Those can be chaotic, um, even 
dangerous, right? And I wonder, is anyone surveyed or stats how many of the folks in this sort of population are, are living in, with other families and doubled up? Um, There's surprisingly little data about that. And it's, I, I'm an old housing guy, so I love to know things like that. Mm -hmm. And I looked for data like that, and there's very little out there. But I also must say that many times those kind of communal living situations are the only thing that allows those families to get by. Mm -hmm. I hear stories from moms all the time, and they're, all, they're going to school and they're working, and one goes and watches the kids, and the other one goes and studies. They'll do this in the middle of the night. I mean, that's what these communal living situations also can produce. They left people up out of poverty and allow people to get move forward. Is some, I don't know, Gloria, I'm coming on this, but is in this population of folks you're serving, how, you know, I've often read and seen statistics that suggest that domestic violence sort of plays into this in, in a big way as a big piece of the, the story. I, I don't know if any, you or someone else wanted to jump in on this, that there's a high, high incidence of domestic violence and involved in the lives of folks who are relying on these services. Well, it can be one of the leading um, reasons for why women are homeless is usually as a result of, of domestic violence situations and nowhere to go. So we already know that that population is, and, and homeless folks are getting created every day as people are losing their housing. It's, is um, one of the, um, the stranger criticisms I heard in sort of preparing for this was an argument that, that, um, that being certified as a domestic violence victim allows you to stay on on some of these programs longer. Is that a factor? Is that true? How does that play out? Well, n under the governor's new proposal, it wouldn't matter if you're a domestic violence victim or not. You're still going to get limited to 24 months. And if you're not working at the end of 24 months, you're going to get kicked off. The CalWORKs program the you know the reason that mostly young families young women with children come to the welfare office is because they're usually escaping either a, a broken marriage a broken relationship or in many many cases a situation of domestic violence i i interview many welfare recipients and eventually you talk to them long enough and domestic mm -hmm. violence is going to come out i wanted to ask another thing and maybe michelle could address this that one thing that claim that schwarzenegger has made and um is that and, and there's been a lot of press reporting actually on grand juries in a couple of different counties. The notion that there's there's fraud and not enough, or at least not enough checking in IHSS. And I'm curious, you know, as someone who's a caregiver, how often do you get checked on? What, what we have a, a county worker comes to our home and meets me and my son, and we do a whole tour of the house and we talk about his daily living activities. And, and what ends up happening with us? Every time we have a worker come out, they give us more hours. <laughs> really? <laughs> because, you know, he's 14 years old. He's not walking. He's not talking. He's still getting toilet trained. I mean, it's, you know, that's, that's a tough situation. So, I mean, the workers actually want to give us more hours, which, I, which is pretty compelling. Yeah. Uh, I mean, anyone who is doing this legitimately has no problem you know, opening up our home, uh, filling out the paperwork as annoying as it may be. But you know, the thing how about- much, I, How much paperwork is there actually? Well, you like? have to get recertified, I think it's once a year, and then you have to fill out like a pay time card every two weeks. What does it mean to be certified in this situation? What do you have to know or do? You know, you have to certify that yes, he still has cerebral palsy. You know, oh, that really? hasn't okay. changed. <laughs> um, I, we feel, we're also, uh, we get uh, some very limited Medi-Cal 
uh, because we have private health insurance, but that doesn't cover everything, so we have some Medi-Cal. And so I do annual redeterminations with that as well, and it's, it's pretty crazy. Like, does he still have the disability? Yes, we haven't found the miracle solution. You know? mm -hmm. um, and there, I mean, there's a whole group of us, and I think if you want to save money, those of us who have, you know, people with permanent disabilities, you could just take us out of that pool, and it would save all the clerical time. Hmm. Uh, uh, so there's a lot of ways, if you really want to save money and make people's lives easier, you could do it. And one way would actually be to eliminate paperwork. Um, and if nothing else, we could renew online, and that would, at the very least. But, you know, the thing about uh, IHSS and programs that help keep people at home, it saves money like, from, like, nursing homes. Um, it wasn't so long ago that kids like my son were put in state hospitals. Hmm. You know, you didn't see kids like this 40 years ago because... They weren't around. They were, you know, they were taken away. And, and pediatricians would say to the family, this is bad for your family. It's bad for the other siblings. You know, you need to put the child in an institution for the good of the family. And, um, you know, it wasn't until we had the Lanterman Act of 1969 passed by uh, a very conservative assemblyman uh, that we began to open up the community. And the benefits are to the, p the clients, but it's to the society. It saves uh, millions of dollars by keeping these people at home. Yes, I, for people of a certain age, I was in you know, the Lanterman Act, and I was driving up the two at the intersection of the 134. That's the Frank Lanterman Exchange, if you notice the very <laughs> small signs. Um, um, Senators, there was uh, something that uh, Michelle mentioned about trying to make it easier to enroll folks, um, uh, particularly electronically. Um, where does that stand? I mean, one of the arguments, you know, one of the bits of criticism from, again, from maybe some more conservative folks is that, is that unions, including the one you used to work for, mm -hmm. fight that. And I wonder if you could sort of address that issue a little. Well, well there's a couple of things. The governor says reforms, but they're really rollbacks. Uh, and there is a certain anti-union bent to all of this. Yeah. Uh, this discussion, I have to be very candid with all of you, this discussion really borders on the absurd. I mean, what we're talking about is people who need other people to care for them. And we're talking, and the, this, this, this phrase, I mean, it's very Orwellian, this whole discussion when you're in the Capitol. Uh, you're talking about rollbacks, and they call them reforms. Uh, they talk about saving jobs by cutting jobs, mm -hmm. right? They talk about <laughs> helping the economy by undermining the economy, and it's in a very, very uh, Orwellian uh, environment that we're up there uh, in the Capitol. These programs, IHSS, is an extraordinary program. She talks about saving millions of dollars. Remember, you don't have to pay for somebody's infrastructure, for their restroom, for their plumbing, for their utilities, for their food. There's all these savings that are inherent in every person who's cared by an IHSS worker. Mm -hmm. We've taken and decoupled institutional care and put it in people's homes. And the benefit to the society has been that people have been integrated back into society. Their quality of life in this state with this great program has made this a greater state. And the governor wants to dismantle this. Why? Because some of the care providers joined a union. And he wants to undermine it by attacking the, the service recipients and going after the service providers. I mean, it's just, it's just extraordinary to be there, to listen to the discussions. I, I continue to be amazed at how anybody takes anything he says at, at its face value, 
that his ability as an actor to say things that you know are not true <laughs> and for people to sit there with a pad and pencil and write them as if they're true is just one of the most extraordinary things that you can, can witness. Uh, the tragedy of it is, is that this is very real and the consequences of it is that it is jeopardizing the very lifeblood of this uh, really great environment that we live in called California. Well, thank you to all of you. I think it's time to open this up for audience questions. Michael Liu. Um, I want to preface my question by saying, of course, uh, I support full support for the disabled community. Um, but, you know, there's always the other side of the coin and story. And I noticed the panel, there aren't any Republicans or Governor, Governor Schwarzenegger's uh, supporters. So I was looking forward to a balanced panel, and we don't have one. So. If any of you can actually maybe balance. tell tell me <laughs> <laughs> tell me what the Republicans would uh, you know say in response to your accusations, I'd like love to hear that. What they'll say is that uh, we should that the taxes are the people's dollars, the people's money, and somehow they have anointed themselves as the protectorate of those dollars. What they'll say is that uh, we need to confront waste, fraud, and abuse as if we're indifferent to that, as if we don't care about it. We do care about waste, fraud, and abuse. Government should be efficient and we should be uh, the stewards of people's money. But we live in a representative government in which we have a trust, a public trust, to use and manage those dollars in the public interest. They would rather that all those dollars are given back to people. The great Tom McClintock speeches, Tony Strickland speeches, give it back to the people and let them do that. But we've tried that. For example, the vehicle license fee, aka the car tax. We were going to give you back this great benefit. And many of us said, oh, great idea, the car tax. We don't want to pay a car tax because nobody wants to pay taxes. So they did that. And not realizing $42 billion have left the treasury of the state of California. That's why, in part, we're in part of this crisis. Because you can't take your $200 or your $500 or even your $1,000 and buy a police officer when you need one or buy a teacher when you need one or buy, you know, go fill a pothole when you need one. It doesn't work that way. We live in a civil society where there's an aggregate good that comes out of the aggregate resources of our community. I, I'll jump in to answer that since I'm the Schwarzenegger biographer and, and occasionally <laughs> yeah. sympathetic. Um, and I talk to him often. And the, 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 the fixation actually seems to be specifically on comparing us to other states, making this, the state has a tradition of being um, a, a deep and long tradition of being more generous even before Cal works. I mean, you'll see a statistic cited that, you know, our caseloads have only gone down about 44%, and you see other states where they've gone to 16, 70%. But we always had, we always, that's down from always a big base. And, and I think it's part of our culture as a state. We've always been a boom state. We've always been a bus state. Um, and in our better moments, we've been pretty generous. But he wants to, he's very emphatic that we should be much more like other states. He doesn't want to be you know, he'll say often we're too generous. Now, it doesn't sound very generous if you're, you know, it's $694 is the maximum benefit for a family of three on, on CalWORKs, but that, that puts us in third place in terms of all the 50 states in terms of the number of folks. Very much fixated on an idea of, of, of competitiveness. Talks about it in the same terms as he does, you know, talking about business incentives versus other states. It very much seems to be in the same part of his mind. But I think what, if I could just respond to that, I think while you know, you can compare us to other states. You can also not compare, you also have to compare our housing costs and our other costs of living to other states, many of which are far lower than Californians. 
Californians. The other thing I would note that just keeps continually gets overlooked when we talk about welfare is um, we actually spend 20% less on welfare today, the state does, in state general fund dollars than we did 15 years ago. We have not increased our spending on welfare from the state treasury since 1998. We have decreased the percentage of the general fund going to welfare from 7% to 3%. So while the governor makes these arguments that we were out of balance with other states, he fails to take account the, into account the, the significant reductions that we have made and the contributions that the CalWORKs program makes to other state programs. We kick a billion dollars that the feds send us every year and send it out into other state programs so that we don't have to spend general fund dollars on them. Governor never talks about that either. So I think there are many things here that get unsaid or are left as kind of half-truths when he says things like that. I think we've got another question. question. Yeah. All the way to your left here. Yeah. Uh, I remember many years ago, um, when uh, the, the second Proposition 13 uh, was, uh, was, was on the ballot, the president of the University of California sent a letter to all the parents um, of uh, students at the university uh, um, indicating that they should vote against it or, or there were going to be terrific cuts in the university. And one of the things I don't understand, I, I'm sympathetic to everything that you guys say, but the Republicans have, have won all the battles in terms of that government is bad. And, and people deserve their money. I, I, I don't hear or see enough initiatives as to why government is wonderful and why <coughs> we need it and, and, and why it's really, I mean, almost all the cuts you guys have talked about are really not even in Californians' interests, never mind whether they have hearts or not. Um, but I don't hear enough of a case as to why we should take pride in our government and why it's worth your tax dollars. Thank you. Marta, why don't you grab that? Yeah. yeah. I'd like to talk a little bit about the social contract. Okay, after the New Deal, there were a number of programs that were put in place, and Roosevelt was very smart in his approach, although it took a number of years for a lot of the programs to actually be ena enacted. Part of the social contract is Medicare, which every one of you will, at some point in your lives, need and depend on and use. Um, there's uh, Medicaid, which also came later down the road, which is also a, a part of the social contract. So what we're saying here is that if business and corporations and the rich have the right to use our labor, our resources, whatever exists in this country to make money, to make profits, then the working people and the less fortunate are entitled to a fair share. Now, this has been deteriorated over the past 30 years since, the, since Reagan became president. Because what happened then was um, a great attempt to undo the social contract. In fact, you know, I think Dave, it was David Stockman, his budget advisor who let the cat out of the bag, that said, you know, we were there building the welfare state brick by brick. And the whole idea was if we create a deficit that is great enough, um, that seems unburdenable by society, then we will starve the beast and we will be able to start cutting the social programs that our particular ideology 
despises. Um, could any of the panelists speak to the um, whether or not it's time really to take the welfare and, and health uh, uh, duties performed by the states and make it part of the federal government? That would probably require a constitutional amendment since that's not part of their their uh, uh, preview, like uh, real international relations or war. But uh, is that something that we need to consider, given the di given the different disparities in the states' abilities to uh, meet their obligations right now? Who wants to? You want to grab that, Gloria? Yeah. Well, I think that's one of the things that healthcare reform is striving to be able to do is l kind of level the playing field in terms of access to healthcare. Uh, how that will actually roll out is yet to be determined. Uh, there's all sorts of different plans. Uh, I think part of it, though, goes back to the culture of the United States and, and the cultures of America. Um, you know, we're one of the few countries in the world that doesn't have um, total access to health care. And part of it here is all sorts of different factions that have been uh, in existence in a system that really isn't integrated and trying to get all of that system now integrated. It's going to be hard to do. But I don't think um, anyone can tell you that the way the healthcare system is today is working. I think there is agreement from everywhere uh, that it is not working and something needs to be done. So I think the efforts we have today is to do some of what you're talking about, is take control and try to put something in place that will work at least to some extent for everyone or at least as many as possible in the country. Mike, you wanted to add something? Well, I think the question, you know, essentially we did have a federal system until 12 years ago for, for welfare. It was called AFTC. And, and we, we actually abolished it and turned it all over to the states under the theory that the states could, closer to the people, they could experiment more, they could have a more innovative program. And of course, you know, what's happened, unfortunately, is over time, the feds have sort of re-exerted their authority over states anyway. So a lot of, you know, one of the problems we've been having with the governor this week is he's, you know, complaining about, we've been, he's been complaining that they were not meeting the federal rules, but he's written a series of letters saying that really the federal rules are impossible to meet. So I think, <laughs> you know, we may be at a situation, I think, where welfare reform is going to get reappraised next year. Uh, whether, now that we've gone through a, a recession, a deep recession like this, whether or not this is still the same, the right approach, I think is open to question. Uh, frankly, California does take better care of its citizens. Many states are not. Thank you. My name is Les Hamer. My activist friends and myself have found fault on the, just about everybody, the legislature and the governor, the Republicans and the Democrats. And there's a lot of feeling about, is it really possible to get a state constitutional convention going and get the people as a whole to start working on these problems and trying to solve it ourselves instead of expecting the government to do it for us? Anyone want to grab that? Senator Cedillo, do you have a... Have you been pinned down on the Constitutional Convention? That's, uh, we can make some news here. You know, I... I, I obviously have my own ideas about what the things work and don't work, what the problems are. Uh, I don't know who has the capacity to convene this convention. There's a very kind of romantic sense about it. Let's bring the people. But it's what people, what part of California, what, how is it going to be organized, who's going to be represented, 
what interests are, are going to play here. If people think, I don't think it's, it's realistic to think that these very important, significant interests of the state, and we'll assume all of them take them all at their face value, are going to sit by and allow some changes to take place without their, their input and marshalling their resources to protect their interests. And so uh, it sounds very Jeffersonian, and people like that. But in a state of 35 million people, I don't know what the prospects are for that. There are a, a, a handful of very serious uh, work groups right now that are, that are convened, that are working on, on, on taxation policy and, and on changes that should be made, some discussion about a constitutional convention. But they are beginning to um, fragment uh, as you know, interests begin to, to see what, what could be the adverse impact on them. I, I'm actually curious, have, there are all, is all this talk of statewide reform, constitutional conventions, tax, the panelists here, have, have you, you know, been engaged in any, by, by any of the folks on the issue of what these things would mean for, for social services, you know, you know, is that? Well, for one thing, if there wasn't a two-third majority, supermajority requirement, I think they would probably have a lot more power to have gotten a budget by now. Uh, because the Republicans have held some very reasonable uh, proposals, you know, they've just held them up. And I would say, in, in some respects, though, people say, well, let the people decide. In, in many respects, we are constructing with term limits a government of the people. Uh, term limits is, is removing exactly. people who have yeah. skill and talent yeah. and institutional knowledge and replacing them with people who have an ability to leave the profession for two, four, six, eight, maybe ten years. I'm one of five of the most senior members of the state legislature. I was telling somebody today, I'm the Ralph Dills of the <laughs> California legislature today uh, and will be leaving shortly. Uh, I have to tell you this thing about let the people decide uh, and create, you know, this kind of hostility to, to the government. Uh, we have that now with term limits. Uh, there's only a handful of us who have uh, that institutional experience uh, and memory for all the deals that were put together that constructed uh, uh, the great welfare state that the state is and then the welfare reform of 96 which was a myriad of exchanges with Pete Wilson and Kurt Pringle and, and Cruz Bustamante etc. Um, now there are people who go there and don't have the experience, don't understand and yet are thrust into positions. I looked at the budget committee the other day young men and women, intelligent, skilled, but don't have a clue about what's happening. Lannerman, who is that? What, what's that about? Yeah. What was, how did that come about? Who created it? The Deals Act, myers Millis brown Act, uh, uh, you know, uh, all these that are, that are important landmark discussions within our society. Uh, people are there who don't have a clue about where they came from, hmm. nor the preparation or the training to make the decisions. And so what we are watching is a people's government Right? At work right now, right? Because yeah. we've kind of deprofessionalized it. <laughs> right. Then we've encumbered it with rules like a two thirds vote to raise revenue, two thirds vote to pass sure. a budget, right? And, right. Then, and then term limits. It's, it's, it's surprising that anything works. An unorganized people's <laughs> government. Um, <laughs> other question? Yeah, hi, my name is Luis Rodriguez, and I have a question about the effect of the federal stimulus package on the California budget cuts and whether the federal stimulus package will make a big, a big effect in reducing the impact or whether it will have a little effect? Well, it's huge, uh, obviously, because uh, in many areas, and this is 
the debate and discussion going on right now within education, to what extent can cuts that are being made uh, be backfilled in education? So there, you know, the, the Democrats have been very careful to, while we have acquiesced to cuts, we've done so in a way where we think, okay, well, we're going to do a cut here in education, but it's going to be backfilled uh, by stimulus package. Uh, some of it then will go down to local uh, entities, school boards to control and figure out how they do that and then that's the rub, that's the, the current conflict you see uh, in LAUSD for example, do you spend it all now, do you, do, you, do you spread it out, what can you anticipate with respect to the economy and so it does have an effect, it also has an effect to ex the extent that some of it requires or to the extent it requires us to do a match and that's kind of challenging in, in a circumstance where you don't have uh, those resources to do the match and we obviously we seek waivers to give us an opportunity simply to access uh, the stimulus dollars. Uh, you know, those dollars are intended to move our economy forward. Uh, we are in real challenging times. But we undermine those dollars when we, the state, don't participate, don't try to maximize them. And we are really undermining the economy. If we don't build infrastructure, and move projects, we undermine the economy. If we, we are dumbing down this state, we were number one in the nation. Now we're behind DC. If we do not invest in education, you cannot build a workforce. You will not have what we've done in California is create this incredible state, uh, the technology, the universities, uh, the research and development to spur the economy forward. These are investments that need to be made. The stimulus package is designed to help uh, move that forward, to, to stimulate it. But if we don't partner with it and we simply use it to, to backfill uh, cuts, then it's not going to have its effect. It's simply status quo. Gloria, why don't you get on a little on the health care? Well, in health care, much of, of the programs have federal dollars that come, not necessarily an equal match, but there's federal dollars that come in for the dollars that the state spends. So we will actually be leaving billions of dollars on the table um, that the feds will spend in other states um, that won't come here. Just let me give you one example. Um, the governor proposes to um, repeal uh, rate increases for the Family Planning Access Program. We get $9 from the federal government for every $1 the state puts up. That doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. And that's just one example. Uh, healthy families, another example, where through um, the federal government, they've actually expanded and increased dollars available to the state, and the governor's proposing to eliminate it. Carmen Gonzalez, first off, I want to thank the panelists. Thanks for all your input. Uh, good food and fodder for my brain. Now, I've heard reports that um, with the growing deficit in California, that if Moody's actually lowers our credit rating, then we become junk bond status and then we can't get institutional investors to then bring us bond money, et cetera. It just starts cascading. Now, it's big enough now and if it catapults into sort of this junk bond status category, is there a real chance that these very important programs would go away? And if so, in your minds, is there a real opportunity here for Californians to finally put pressure to revisit Prop 13 and the two-thirds majority vote to raise. Anything like that? Well, we're in great danger. There's no question about that. Um, and as I said, we're really challenged by 
leadership. The governor has a, an ideological agenda that's distinct from balancing the budget and from uh, uh, sustaining and protecting the economy. I'll give you an example. Tuesday night last week, uh, we were prepared to deal with one part, which would save about $3 billion. But because of his com desire to make cuts and, and our unwillingness to cut these very programs, these very programs will not balance the budget. Uh, he was willing to, to now create, and they're not sure. That's why I'm here today, because they haven't figured out the impact of his failure to accept our proposal, which has created somewhere between $1 to $7 billion more of deficit. His mere failure to take that action has created $1 to $7 billion more. For some reason, this mistake of his, this folly of his, just is not, he's not held accountable uh, by the press. And so it still remains the legislature versus the governor. The governor is going to, you know, make us be disciplined and make us, you know, be accountable. But he's, he's made incredible errors, and that's, that's one of them. That's undermining uh, uh, our credit rating and our credit status. Uh, I don't think um, these programs don't play a central role to the balancing of our budget or to economy. That's, the, that's probably the most disturbing thing. With respect to Prop 13, uh, Joel Fox wrote a very, as he is, very capable response today on to what extent. Jo Joel uh, Fox is a former president yeah. of the Howard Jarvis tax. Yeah, Joel Fox, former uh, president of Howard, uh, Howard Jarvis and now head of a small business association, wrote a very uh, capable, very uh, uh, thoughtful response uh, in, in defense uh, of Prop 13. I don't agree with him uh, with all aspects, but he, he really did make some very uh, logical and, and solid responses. The problems are in part Prop 13, but they're not just Prop 13. I, I think probably the, the biggest structural aspect of this may be the two-thirds, uh, but I think term limits has a profound part of this because ultimately, at the end of the day, this is really is about a challenge uh, and crisis of leadership, and I think that is the most fundamental challenge that confronts this, uh, this state and this nation. I, one last little follow-up as we're done, but um, why can't you win this one? I mean, the, in this moment, you know, ec this is economic stimulus, right? Most of these programs. This is quick cash into people's hands who are going to spend it. Why hasn't that sort of political reframing s sort of happened? I, I, I mean... God knows we've tried. <laughs> I mean, it's been said repeatedly in Sacramento, and I, it's it's amazing that it doesn't sink into the level that one would think. Okay. But you know what? At the end of the day, I'll make a prediction. Um, the conference committee package that was not approved a couple of weeks ago, the budget that we finally do, this was your opening question, <laughs> um, the, the, the budget that we finally do, it's going to look a lot like that package. There'll be a couple of minor tweaks to it, but the governor's not going to win most of this stuff. We've been through this year after year. We always end up at this impasse. He tries to push a couple of things in at the end. We resist real hard, and we end up really with the compromise. That's my prediction. I could be dead wrong in public soon. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs>